good morning to all of you. It's great to be back here at TLC. Didn't know that I was going to come back quite this soon, but then again, Jordan called. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I got a call the uh, from just Friday night, and uh, I found out that with uh, <clears throat> so many of your folks gone, and then you all came to hear Austin this morning, right? So I know that, and so they had to go into the deep bench to find me, and so here I am. But it is great uh, to to be with all of you. It really is. It's fun. Well, um, we are uh, at this uh, juncture, this place, just after Easter. And so um, I have Torin's permission to tell you uh, some jokes. Now, I am not a fan of any sermon that starts with jokes. Have you seen this kind of thing before? But I'm obligated. I have no freedom not to tell you a joke. And I'll tell you why I'm completely obligated here in a moment. But here we go. So I'm not a person who goes around knowing jokes. You got anybody like me? If some, I just don't think of jokes. So um, I went to my joke expert, my seven-year-old grandson, and he has always got something funny to say. And if you hang around seven and eight-year-olds, you know that there is a genre of jokes which they tend to specialize in, and they are called knock-knock jokes. So anyway, if you are seven or eight years old, you're really going to like these. All right, you got to do this with me. You know how this goes. Knock, knock. Tank. You're welcome. You know, the longer I think about that, the more I think it just doesn't work. All right, here's another one. Knock, knock. Figs. Figs the doorbell. It's not working. I think that one is just a little bit better. I just do. But anyway, you've got to be a little kid to really go for this. So I decided to myself, well, what I need to do is go online because I figured you're a very sophisticated audience. I know that. And so I found something. Here's one for you. This is an adult one. That sounded horrible. An adult knock knock joke? No, it means a grown-up joke. Whatever. Knock knock. Euripides. Euripides clothes and you're going to pay for them. Euripides, 500 BC, he was a playwright in Greece. He's got, uh, you know, Euripides, well, whatever. Okay, anyway, so um, the reason that joke telling always has to take place in the week after Easter is this. This goes back about a thousand years in the medieval church. And monasteries were already very sober and quiet places, you know, throughout medieval Christianity. And, and so anyway, um, the, the period of Lent, the 40 days before Easter, they were especially so, okay? And so consequently, when Easter came, well, they couldn't say the word hallelujah in any of the, of the liturgies before, during Lent. They couldn't. So it was very quiet. Um, when Easter came, they could say hallelujah for the first time. They could ring bells. They could do all of this kind of stuff. And it was the only week in which um, monks were free to play jokes on and pranks on the abbot and all of the people who were in charge of the place. Is this cool or what? Anyway, the idea was they wanted laughter in the monasteries. That was the idea. And so joke telling in the week after Easter was a standard thing. I'm sure they did not use knock-knock jokes. Anyway, um, because... Christ has risen, and therefore there should be all kinds of laughter and humor and celebration happening inside of the church. Anyway, it's a great tradition. It has been going on for a long time, and now you have stepped into medieval Christianity, just letting you know. Well, what I would like to do this morning is I would like very much to talk about Easter and what 
what is the significance of Easter for all of us? We're living in the shadow of Easter. This is the period of time that comes right after Easter. And it's very important for us as Christians to pause and to ask ourselves, okay, so what is the significance? What's the takeaway of Easter for us? That's what I'd like us to do this morning. Um, for instance, take a look, if you would, at 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15, and I want to show you the centrality of Easter, say, to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians. If you are a Grand Valley student, uh, just so you, it's in the New Testament, so you know. Um, if you go to Cornerstone, it's in the Bible. That's a book that Christians carry around. Just saying, you know, I know there's a struggle occasionally with that. There you go. Anyway, so 1 Corinthians, and it's chapter 15. They're kind of numbered. And then you'll see little numbers, and that's the verses. All right? Okay, so 1512, I'll read it out loud slowly for Grand Valley. <clears throat> Paul writes, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? No, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's a remarkable sentence come from the pen of the Apostle Paul. If there has not been a resurrection at Easter, then your faith is futile. Your faith really has got no meaning. You might as well go home. That's all it is. Listen to the words here from Martin Luther, the great patriarch of the Reformation, 1500s. Listen to what Luther says. He says, whoever wants to preach the gospel in my churches must go directly to preaching the resurrection of Christ. Whoever does not preach the resurrection is no apostle. Everything depends on retaining a firm hold on this one article of faith. If this one idea no longer counts, then every other belief loses its validity. That's Luther. It's incredible. So you can see Paul, Luther, they're saying, look, this, this idea of Easter is central to everything that we believe. The resurrection is the north star of authentic faith in Jesus. We navigate everything by it. Do you know that throughout the history of the church, Easter was always the primary festival for Christianity? This idea of making a big thing out of Christmas, forget about it. It actually goes back only about 100 or 150 years. Christmas was a minor festival. But it's been secularized, of course, and that's why it's been amped up so much. But Easter was the festival for the church because everything is centered right here. So why is Easter so valuable to us? It's valuable to us because it tells us two things about Jesus and it tells us one major thing about ourselves, okay? So that's our outline right there. So we've got two things about Jesus that are essential to know as Christians, as believers, as Christ followers, and one thing about ourselves, okay? So let's take these in turn. The first thing that the New Testament says very, very clearly to us is that the resurrection, the Easter story, is Jesus' vindication. It's where he is vindicated where his claims about himself are validated. You could think of it that way as well. Here I have in front of me Acts chapter 2, verse 31, and this is the first Christian sermon that is preached in the early church. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and when he preaches, he goes right for the resurrection. Listen to this. 
Jesus was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear now. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, Christ. So notice two things that Peter says. First of all, it is in Easter, in the resurrection, that we see clearly now what seemed to be less clear during his earthly ministry. If you had any questions about the validity of Jesus, you see that inside of the resurrection, he was definitely the Messiah. What he claimed about his relationship with God was true. The resurrection demonstrates that Jesus was who he said he was. This is why the Gospels give such a remarkable amount of time validating, making clear that you understand what happened with the cross and the resurrection. If you read Matthew's Gospel, for instance, you'll have a small section at the beginning talking about Christmas stories, and then when you get to the end, the passion story of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion and resurrection, it is a huge section. 60% of Mark's Gospel is that section. That's amazing. What the gospel writers are wanting to say to you is, make sure that you have a solid foundation for your faith. It is the resurrection. That's where we begin with everything. In fact, when you go into the book of Acts, you know the book of Acts is filled with lots of speeches. And in these speeches, generally people are trying to convey the truth of the Christian faith to an audience that really doesn't get it. And if you look carefully at these speeches, when they begin to introduce Jesus to the audience, they don't refer to the miracles, they don't refer to Christmas, they don't refer to any of these great things that Jesus did in his ministry. They always launch with the resurrection. The resurrection is that, as I said, North Star, and we begin navigating with it. So Paul when he tries to tell the Corinthians, who seem to be waffling a little bit when it comes to the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians, when he's telling the Corinthians, you've got to begin to believe that the resurrection is the nodal point of our faith. What he says to them is, look, 500 people saw the resurrected Christ, so therefore go talk to them. That's a pretty amazing claim to make if these people are not around. He is talking about eyewitnesses here. So all of this means that Jesus was never abandoned by God. He was never abandoned by God through his earthly ministry. But above all, now we're saying he was never abandoned by God through the, through the tomb and into Easter morning. God was with him all the way through. One of the interesting things about Jesus, uh, the culture he came out of, is that it was what we would call a tomb-venerating culture. Now, let me explain that to you. Um, there are a number of cultures where when you bury someone of significance, someone who is a great rabbi or a sage, there is respect for that tomb, but also it becomes a place of pilgrimage. You go to that tomb. You want to be close to that person. Judaism had that. And today, if you go to Jerusalem, for instance, you will see young rabbinic students will actually go to the tombs of great rabbis and they'll pray at that. I was explaining this to an African friend of mine just two days ago. And I was telling her, I said, you know, it's just amazing about being at this tomb or that tomb. And she said, oh my gosh, she said, an African would never go to a tomb. 
And Evergreen stays away from cemeteries. You bury someone and then you get out of there. It was so interesting. And she explained to me a culture of sort of cemetery revulsion as opposed to cemetery attraction. Do you see the difference there? Jesus is in a culture that is attracted to the great tombs of holy people. Now, Jesus is buried. The Christian community knows exactly where that tomb is. Jesus comes from the tomb, and for 300 years, the early Jewish Christian community never venerates the tomb. That's weird. The, tomb, the, the church that is built over that tomb only begins in about A.D. 300, 325. They don't venerate the tomb. Why don't they venerate the tomb? Because as they think about Jesus, they know the tomb is empty. And therefore, it is not a place, if you want to have proximity to Jesus, you don't go to the tomb because he's not there. He's not there. That's not what we believe. So the first idea that we want to hold deeply is the resurrection, Easter Sunday, vindicates Jesus. It validates exactly who he is. Something happened in the past in his ministry, and this proves it to be true. Okay, that's the first idea. The second idea about Jesus is that Easter is about Jesus' glorification. The first word is vindication. The second is glorification. Here's what I mean by this. In Peter's first sermon that we read just a minute ago from Acts chapter 2, notice that Peter said, the resurrection now has made clear not only that Jesus was the Messiah, Christ, but also that he is Lord. Now, the word Lord is peculiar here. This is a word that you use for God if you're a Jew. This is a word of, 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 of deep respect for someone who is, well, right in front of you, you might say. In other words, there is something that happens at Easter that isn't about something in history in the past, but something in the present. God is now brought Jesus to be at his right hand. Here's the logic. It goes like this. If Jesus left the tomb, then Jesus isn't in the tomb. And if Jesus isn't in the tomb, Jesus is somewhere. Do you get it? He's someplace. We, as Christians, have to come to terms with this. Too often I meet Christian believers again and again who say to me, the meaning of Easter is that I believe in a historical fact that goes all the way back 2,000 years. The tomb was empty. Jesus came out of it. Nice. I get that. That's the first idea, vindication. But they miss the second idea. Okay, he came out of the tomb, and then what did he do? In other words, the early Christians were saying, Easter is not just about the past, it's about the present. In other words, Jesus is now with us. He is present with us. You can think of it this way. If Christmas is about Jesus' pre-existence, in other words, he came into this world at Christmas, Easter is about his post-existence. That's the way you could think about it if you wish. One of the remarkable things, <clears throat> weird things, about the letters of the New Testament, if you read them carefully, is this. When they were referring to Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, or something like this, when they write these sentences, they rarely, if ever, use the past tense for him. They never say, Jesus was the Son of God. They don't do that. They use the present tense. 
all of the time. Jesus is the Son of God, not Jesus was Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. They use the present tense again and again. And what they are doing is affirming with that language that Christian faith is not simply about historical affirmation. Christian faith is embracing a reality that is present with us now. So therefore, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He is present. He is called, as Paul always says, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a living citizen of heaven. He is sitting with the Father. By the way, you know, that's how they understood this idea of him being at the right hand. I'm going to use it in a minute. Um, let me put it this way. Often when we think about God in heaven, as, as Jews and, and, and Greeks and Romans thought about this, they would have thrones but when they invited someone to come and be at their right hand, they had a secondary throne that was a bench. It's on Roman coins. You can see it in inscriptions. It's really fun. Anyway, you ever heard of the bench, the royal bench? No, you probably haven't. Or now you will. Anyway, so the king sits on a bench, and actually he has a seat right next to him. And someone who has been given the extreme honor is invited to come up and sit right next to the king. That's the way it works. So when we think about Jesus going to be with the Father, the imagery of the first century is he is seated and he is a co-regent with God. That's an amazing thing. So what is he doing there? He is helping to rule creation on behalf of the Father. He's making a place in heaven to greet you. And he is interceding, talking to the Father on your behalf. There's a great image of this in um, Acts chapter 7. You know, one of the earliest uh, uh, martyrs in the church was a guy named Stephen. So you meet him in Acts chapter 6. He, he is an outspoken Christian, Stephen is. Um, he preaches this long, the longest sermon in the book of Acts. So he's a long-winded guy. Um, and then when it's over, they stone him. Um, I think it's because of his faith, not because of the length of his sermon. That's what I'm hoping anyway. So anyway, Stephen is killed. Now, God gives him a vision. And if you read it very carefully, you probably have missed something. What happens is he looks into heaven. He's given this vision and he sees Jesus, but Jesus is no longer seated. Jesus actually comes to his feet. Now, in the ancient world, when a royal, when someone who is sitting there next to God, or the king, stands up. When a king stands up, just as a tip, if you ever go to a country where there's royalty and there's a king, and they stand up in front, back up, because something is about to happen. People who come to visit a king, the king sits down, and everybody else stands. But when the king stands, this is dramatic. Stephen has a vision of heaven. Jesus is standing. Stephen says, oh, Lord Jesus, and he then Jesus is waiting to carry him into his presence when he dies, and then he dies. Here's a crazy aside. This is something that we, we don't do in the Western church. I wish we did. But in the churches of Egypt and Syria and Iraq, because there have been so many Christian martyrs over the last 2,000 years, they talk about martyrdom in church all the time. In fact, if this was an Orthodox church in Damascus right now, the walls actually would be all painted with remarkable scenes, and many of the scenes would be of Christian martyrs in the last 2,000 years. You would go to Sunday school class and see a guy filled with arrows. It's kind of a strange way to grow up. But you grow up knowing that your faith may cost you. 
Stephen's story becomes the template for martyred Christians for centuries. When that terrible movement called ISIS was moving through the Middle East and has now for the most part been defeated, ISIS martyred many, many Christians. And the last words they all wanted to say, they were trained in this, the last words they wanted to say as they were killed by ISIS was Stephen's words. Oh, Lord Jesus, because that who was waiting to meet me. So therefore, my faith is not just a recitation of history that Jesus was raised. Yeah, that's a piece of it. It's an acknowledgement of the present. It's an acknowledgement of this world. It is the now of our lives. Jesus is in things, in your life now and in the present. So if I meet a Christian for whom it is just about historical recitation, and I can tell you how many angels were at the tomb, and I know about first century tombs and all the rest of it, that's great. But that's only half of the story. All right, I said there are three things. There are two things about Jesus. The first is his vindication. The second thing is his glorification, the past and the present, all right? And then there's a third thing I want to tell you about, and that is about our salvation. This word salvation, I think we use it way too much. <laughs> we do. We talk about salvation all the time. This Greek word, salvation, it is a Greek word is sozain, if you collect Greek words. You know, it goes with knock-knock jokes. It's really great. Anyway, um, sozain means to make something whole that was broken. It's used a lot with like pottery. If you drop a pot and you pick it up and you have all these pieces and you put them all back together, the pot is saved. That's the trouble with the way we translate it as saved. Sozain means take what was broken and then restore it so that it's been renewed. Okay? That's the idea. You've saved the pot. That's the idea. Okay? So therefore, as I look inside of the New Testament, I discover that there is something about restoration, salvation that is promised at Easter for us. In other words, Easter makes a promise to make not only Jesus whole again, whose body was so broken on the cross, but it's also a promise of restoration for you and me. If Jesus defeated the tomb and I am attached, if my life is attached to Jesus, then I also must die in my own discipleship with Christ. I'm echoing Romans 6. But then that also means I will rise with Christ because I'm attached with him. The power that brought Jesus from the grave will also bring me from the grave. Why not? Let's look at Romans chapter 6 on the screen. Paul is writing here, and he's, he's, he's talking about this idea. You, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There we are. So when you become a Christian, you're actually attaching your life to the death of Christ and therefore reaping the benefits of his death on the cross. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. And you can see how baptism actually has that imagery with it. You go into the water and up out of the water. It's a kind of burial and arising. So <clears throat> we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a, what does it say? 
resurrection like his. I get it then. So Easter, therefore, is a promise. It is a proclamation, not simply about Jesus. It is about us who are attached to Christ. And therefore, the power of God that brought him from the tomb is going to bring us from the tomb as well. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 21. Back to Paul, back to Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's premier chapter describing the significance of Easter and the resurrection. You should read the entire chapter sometime. It's remarkable. Here's verse 21. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. Uh huh. So death came into humanity through Adam, but the second Adam, Paul describes him in Romans 5, now is going to give us life and resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. See how it works? So he's playing off this idea of resurrection. Take a look at chapter 15, verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, in other words, when this perishable body that we all wear gets reclothed, gets saved, restored, reconstructed again by the imperishable, and the mortal has been clothed with immortality. Do you see the change? He's going back and forth. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Those famous verses are right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So therefore, what it means then for us is that there is, there is a new birth awaiting us a new reality that is promised to us. Medieval Christians had this really peculiar, funny habit. I, you know, did you get the idea I'd like to live in the medieval world? Fine, except for antibiotics. I want those. Medieval Christians, when a believer was on his or her deathbed, and they're surrounded by their family and their priest, the moment they die, they will say to them, Dies Natalis, it's Latin. Dies, say it with me, Dies Natalis. Dies Natalis. And in Latin, it means happy birthday. <laughs> it's happy birthday. So when my seven-year-old grandson turns eight soon, I'm going to say, Dies Natalis. Dies Natalis, because you have just now experienced yet another birth. You have not simply come into the world in your birthday, but you have now entered into a new life with God. Is that cool or what? Dies Natalis. So Easter is a celebration of the great miracle, the work of God, the emptiness of the tomb, but it's also, it is also a promise that something is here for us. The problem with us is that you and I make Easter simply about a fact of history. Christ was raised. Amen. The worst thing is in when we secularize Easter, and I hope none of you have gotten into little bunnies or pastel colors or marshmallow peeps. I hate marshmallow peeps. I was talking about metaphors inside of our culture for Easter, and I had a group of Chinese students in my class at Calvin Sem, and I said marshmallow peeps, and they were like, what? You try to explain marshmallow peeps to a whole audience of Chinese students. And they just said, you Americans are crazy. 
Easter means that Jesus is present. He's right here now, right with us. He has a transformed existence. And if your discipleship does not embrace the reality of Jesus in your world, you have a half-baked discipleship. It's that simple. But he also awaits you, eager to restore your body as he was restored. The great celebration, the centrality of Easter for the Middle Eastern churches is so cool. I brought some pictures with me because I wanted to show you. So I said to you, the tomb of Jesus was never really venerated, acknowledged for about 300 years. And then when the Christian empire, the Byzantine empire was established in the early 300s, um, Constantine and his mother, Helena, decided we need a church, a big church, a massive church for Jesus. And so they built it right over his tomb where it was supposed to be. And so anyway, the tomb is there, and uh, there is a church, and I want to show you the church. Now, the church has, uh, most of the church goes all the way back to the 300s, which is pretty significant, though the Crusaders did some reconstruction. You can see this enormous dome over the top, okay? It's a big, it's a really big church. And then in the center, you can see that structure that people are kind of around. Um, Western Christians call this the tomb of Jesus or the holy sepulcher. Sepulcher is tomb. The Middle Eastern Christians do not call it the tomb of Jesus. The tomb actually is below that. It goes all the way down to the bottom and it's on the ground level. They don't call it that. They call it the anastasis in Greek. It is called, anastasis in Greek means resurrection. So this is the church of the resurrection. Gloomy Christians from America say, this is the tomb of Jesus. Are you kidding? Those guys are saying, this is the resurrection of Jesus, and here's what we do with it. Here's what happens on Easter. So what happens on Easter is that Orthodox Christians from all over the world, they pile into this church. In, go to the next slide, please. Um, and in, Into the most remarkable ceremony you've ever seen. Now, in Jerusalem, you can buy candles. They're about this tall. They're really skinny, and they put about 12 of them together, right? Um, so I think they're making torches, and they put a ribbon around it, and they sell these in the Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, okay? So people pile into the church, and they're all holding one of these. They are, and you can't even get in. If you're late, you don't get in. It is shoulder to shoulder like this, and you're like this. Inside of the tomb of Jesus, the only person in there is the patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church who is responsible for the tomb of Jesus. Can you imagine? Is that an important position? <laughs> He is responsible for the tomb of Jesus. Inside, he prays, and the tradition is a miracle takes place. His candles, he has a little cluster as well. His candles come aflame, representing the resurrection of Christ. There is a porthole that's open, porthole, that's open on the side of that tomb. He sticks the flaming bunch of candles through the hole, and then people outside of the hole, take their candles, they light them, they light everybody. Suddenly, you're standing with 5,000 people who've got a torch in front of them, and you can't get up. It's a fireman's nightmare. So next slide. Yeah, there we go. So you can see, they're basically passing this. Now, what happens is the light from the anastasis, the light from the tomb, the fire from the tomb for the Orthodox Easter is then taken by uh, the priest, the archbishop from each country comes and he has a kind of lantern and he lights a candle in the lantern, closes the lantern, and then carries it to the airport where planes are waiting. And the fire from the Anastasis travels from Russia to Ethiopia. And so when you go into an Orthodox church and they have candles inside, you know, that never extinguished, the flame originated 
with the anastasis of Jesus. Is that cool or what? We Americans need more cool traditions like that. But they're trying to say that whenever we gather as Christians and we see a candle, a flame in front of us, it is the holy fire of God that emerged from the tomb of Christ. Very sweet. Let me end with this little story that I think goes way back to when I first started. My first teaching job was in Tennessee. And um, uh, yeah, I was in East Tennessee. It's another story, and I'll tell you about it some other time. But um, I'm Presbyterian in background, and so um, there were a lot of Presbyterian churches in East Tennessee that didn't have pastors, and I said, okay, I'll help out, and I got involved with a couple of churches. It was really great fun. But anyway, I want to tell you a story that came out of this. Um, There was a a couple of sisters, a couple of sisters, both were single. you got to love their names. They are Irma and Gertie Erb. I mean, how do I remember this all these years? It's just funny. One of these stories that had such an impact that they just, the story never goes away. So Irma and Gertie, they were both in their 80s at least anyway. Sisters, single. They were, um, yeah, they lived together. Irma stayed in bed most of the time, and frankly, Irma was dying. I had never been around somebody who was near death. She actually uh, died while I was involved in their friendship. and But I visited them all of the time. And uh, Irma would sit in, would be in her bed, and Gertie would sit in a chair right next to me. And um, and then they would always call me preacher. I remember that, preacher, Tennessee. And they would say, preacher, read us something from the Bible. So, okay, sure. And we would talk and all that. Now, here's something about Gertie that you wouldn't know. <clears throat> Gertie had this unusual birth defect. Her left arm was only like this long, and it had no muscle to speak of. She could do nothing with it. It was just that it was loose. She, it was, she was born like this, I learned. And she was very clever about it. If you didn't know, she would hook it like this, or she would hold it like this. And if you really weren't around her a lot, you'd never really figured it out much. Long sleeve shirts all the time. She was very good at disguising this, but I knew about this. Anyway, so one day, I remember, uh, it was the week before Irma died, actually, and uh, uh, I was sitting there next to the bed, and I was uh, reading from the Bible, and, and uh, Irma said something like, you know, read to me something about what it's going to be like when I go to heaven. <laughs> Fortunately, I thought of 1 Corinthians 15, the very verses I've shown to you. And so I read aloud from this passage about how there's going to be a transformed body. Our mortality will be taken up with immortality. It is going to be a salvation, a restoration. It will be new people. Gertie, sitting next to me, perks up immediately. And she interrupts me and she says, Preacher, what did you just say about a new body? She gets out of her chair, she runs to the other room, and she comes back with this thousand-year-old King James Bible. And she gives it to me. She says, I want you to find that passage inside of my Bible. Okay. So anyway, I remember well, she had a red pencil. So I went, you should try to find a favorite passage in the King James Bible when it's that old. Really challenging, but I got there. So I found the verse and then I handed it to Gertie and she then took her pencil and she underlined those verses. It didn't really dawn on me. I mean, naive, stupid me. And I said, Gertie, this is really important to you. What are you going to do when you get to heaven and you have that new body? 
Curdie says to me, this is the, the, the zinger that I have remembered for over 30 years. She says to me, when I get to heaven, I'm going to hug someone with two arms for the first time in my life. Oh my gosh. I don't remember anything else after that. I'm sure I was just stunned and just didn't know what to... It was a holy moment. But Gertie got it. At 85 years old, she got it. That Easter isn't simply about the past and the restoration of Jesus' body. Easter is about the promise and the restoration of our bodies as we go to be with him at the end of our life. Amen? Let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we pray that you would fill our hearts with confidence as we live through Easter week and the weeks that follow. Lord, give us confidence in your strong identity as our Messiah. But most of all, Lord, we want to realize that you are with us now, present with us, readying heaven for us, never abandoning us. We are so thankful. We pray these things in Jesus' name, who is our Lord. And all God's people said, amen.